uh, Tuzzolino. We, we've been in a study group for almost two years now, and I, I can't, I just call you David. Welcome back to another episode of Personal Finance from the Hilltop. As always, I'm your host, Kyle Hill. And on today's episode, we have a special guest with us, David Tuzzolino of Pathbridge Financial, an advisory firm that's based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In addition to being a certified financial planner like myself, David is a chartered financial analyst or a CFA, which we'll dive into a little bit uh, when we speak with him. And he's also the owner of Pathbridge Financial. And he caters to a really unique and intriguing client base that includes pre-retirees and retirees that are focused on traveling and retirement. I like to think of it as travel enthusiasts. He's been uh, featured on many outlets, in many outlets, including Forbes, CNN, The Wall Street Journal, and U.S. News and World Report Business Insider, to name a few. He also frequently writes on his blog about travel and other interesting financial topics. Something kind of interesting as well, if you Google fee-only financial planner Pittsburgh PA, he's the first to appear. And so he's definitely mastered the SEO game. With his depth of knowledge about the subject matter of investments and being a chartered financial analyst, I thought it'd be a great opportunity to bring him on today and help us take a deeper dive into better understanding investments. But just before we dive into that with David, I need to remind you this is for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as investment advice because we are not your financial advisors. However, there is a however, we could be if we did our proper due diligence and evaluated your personal situation. And the best way to get that process started is to schedule a call with either one of us, and you can do so by going to our websites located in the show notes. I know this is a pretty long episode, and I apologize for that, but it has some really good content. And so um, in the show notes, I'll include um, the, the marker to uh, skip the fluff. It's not recommended, but if you want to skip the fluff, you can. I'll allow it, and I'll put that in the show notes so you can go straight to the content. Um, but the, the fluff is, is really good too. So, and with that, here's my interview with David. All right. David Tuzzolino. Did I pronounce that right? Uh, Tuzzolino. Tuzzle. We, we've been in a study group for almost two years now and I, I can't, I just call you David. I was going to so, say, how, how long do you, or, you know, how often do you ever call me by my last name? I know, I know, I know. So Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. And uh, how are things going out there in Pittsburgh? Things are good. Things are good uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, getting a little chillier. Leaves are looking really good. Uh, they're all starting to fall right about now, but uh, the colors are fantastic. And you know, getting ready to ease on into winter. Didn't you say the other day that? Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh area is like the best. They rated the best for the fall foliage. Yeah, I, I have no idea what type of numbers they use to determine this, what type of data, but I saw that actually it's the state of Pennsylvania 
state of has Pennsylvania. the longest uh, fall for foliage foliage. <laughs> there we go. Foliage okay. season um, in the world. Okay. Yeah. No, it's it's beautiful when they're turning colors and um, falling, but man when all the leaves have fallen, it sure looks ugly around here. <laughs> we, we, we don't have any mountains or anything, uh, any ocean or anything like that uh, um, for a backdrop. So, but it's nice when it's happening, just uh, ugly when it's done. So, right. well, cool. Well, hey, um, you're in Pittsburgh. Didn't you say you went to uh, Gettysburg over the weekend? Yes. So trying to you know, come up with, a travel plan, some sort of trip um, without getting too far from home. And I'm kind of a history buff, never been to Gettysburg. And it's really perfect as far as a short drive. Um, got to see the foliage. See, I can say that. <laughs> and as we, when we're there, really everything's outside. You drive around to the different areas of the battle and then you walk around. Uh, you know, outside, um, kind of in areas by yourself. So perfect social distancing, vacation, long weekend. And I, I haven't stayed, um, for example, in a hotel since last year. Okay. <laughs> it just, yeah. I, I, you know, it was great for the the uh, mental well-being is to just get out there and uh, do something a little bit different instead of staring at the the same four walls. Yeah, I think everybody could use that right now. So I've, I've never been to Gettysburg. Um, I remember my dad went there um, when I was younger on a trip. And did you, did you see anything crazy? Because he, uh, he had this picture and he said there was no breeze, but there was this, you know, little American flag in the ground and it was standing straight out like the wind was blowing. I'm like, what? But I don't know. Maybe maybe there's some some ghosts running around there. It's supposed to be extremely haunted. Yeah. And we laughed about. So one of the things that I wanted to do is that there was a tour during the day, specifically through the town, and it was all about okay, this is what the people did during the battle, the townspeople, and what was going on while you know th these huge battles raged right outside of town. And we showed up and it was just me um, and Lori. And it's like, okay, cool. You know, we have the tour guide all to ourselves. We could ask as many questions as we wanted. And we walked around and um, saw everything and really enjoyed it. Well, then that night we did a ghost tour. And our ghost tour had approximately 30 people. And throughout the hour and a half that we did it, we saw at least 10 other ghost tours. So oh, wow. history, not so much interest. Ghosts, huge interest. Yeah. Ha. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I'd love to do a ghost tour. They have one here that uh, they did. I don't know. Who knows right now? Um, that goes around Kansas City and, and does some, some ghost history stories. But, um, yeah, I wasn't a big history fan growing up. But uh, I thought it was boring, um, probably like a lot of kids. But uh, I've, I've developed an appreciation for it, and I find it fascinating now. So 
there's actually this really good uh, podcast that I was listening to. I need to catch up on it called Political Scandal. And it's like historical political scandals. And they did, uh, they're doing 52 episodes leading up to the election. So it's like a year long thing. So it was pretty, it was pretty cool. Um, but I, I need to catch up on it. So I hate to break it to you, Kyle, but history, I think that's like an old man thing. Yeah. 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 The I, older you get, the yeah. more interested you, I think, become. Um, I, and, you know, I laughed at, I'm sure you've seen this commercial on TV all about becoming like your parents. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, uh, is that Geico or progressive? They have like, he's like a certified teacher on not becoming your parents. Exactly. Yeah. And there's the part about, there's a gentleman sitting there reading a book and he sits down next to him and he says, who else reads books about submarines? It's like my dad. Yeah. That's where I was going with that history submarines it's an old man thing so uh, i think you're officially getting there yeah i am yeah we're trying to decide what um i'm gonna go for halloween and we're recording this uh wednesday before halloween so i've only got a couple days but my we're doing some simple costumes my wife's going as a witch my son's go. my oldest is going as a bat and then my youngest is going as a skeleton so we're trying to figure out an idea for me and like, can I just go as a grumpy old man? <laughs> I don't have to do anything, right? Um, so, well, cool. Fun, uh, interesting, funny story. Funny story, real quick, and then we'll dive into um, everything. So, you remember the movie, Remember the Titans? Yes. And Coach Boone, Herman Boone. So, uh, when in the movie, they go to Gettysburg. They take the team to Gettysburg and... Um, Anyway, so this has relevance here. So, but uh, so when I was in college, I was um, on uh, Greek Council IFC, and uh, we had uh, uh, programs for students, and um, we brought in the actual coach Herman Boone to speak to um, the students, and it was our council that coordinated it, and so. He uh, he came in and everything, and when they were coordinating the logistics of his trip, they said that, hey, he has a flight out of here out of our regional airport, so in Manhattan. So they asked for volunteers to get up, you know, at the crack uh, in the middle of the night to take him to the airport. And so I'm like, yeah, sure, Coach Herman Boone, this this is awesome, you know. Remember the Titans, one on one time with him, and and so. Uh, so I volunteered and, and uh, they said, okay, now he's flying out of, typically when you fly out of uh, Manhattan, when you fly from Manhattan, you take the two hour drive to Kansas City and fly out of Kansas City International Airport. Um, but they said he doesn't like driving long distances in cars. And so drive carefully to the airport. I'm like, okay. And so this was in the winter, there was snow on the ground and, um, I picked him up from the hotel and it was probably a, I don't know, 15 minute drive to the airport, uh, Manhattan regional airport. And I'm driving him out there and I'm, you know, taking everyone's advice to go slow. And about halfway through our trip, um, he turns and looks to me and says something like, are you afraid to go faster? Are you scared of driving? What's going on? You're going very slow. 
I've got an airplane to catch. I'm like, I, um, okay. So, uh, yeah, I was being shamed by, I don't know how old he was at the time, probably in his seventies. I saw last year he, he passed away. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was being shamed for driving too slow by Coach Herman Boone. I guess that's my claim to fame. <laughs> so I, I was just trying to heed the advice that everybody gave me. So but anyway. That was your brush with greatness. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I was looking for a motivational speech from him, but uh, maybe that was it. <laughs> Anywho. So um, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, you know, I've been in the financial services industry for, it's been, uh, gosh, it's been about 25 years. And I worked for a lot of the big guys, you know, worked um, for, you know, the household names, everyone would immediately, um, when they hear of, they think, uh, okay, financial services. And I did that uh, for, you know, like I said, a a long time, and got to a point where I kind of wanted to try out you know, starting my own firm. I, I come from a pretty long line of entrepreneurs. You know, we've uh, I've got uh, real estate uh, relatives in real estate, trucking, retail. Uh, I even have a grandfather that did funeral homes. So I, I wanted to kind of do it on my own, and so I started a company called Pathbridge Financial, and we work with people that are getting ready to retire and that love to travel. And the reason that I came up with that is I was hoping um, in 2020 that I would hit my 50th country. Uh, I've been to 45 and something I love to do. And why not work with people that you also, or that also like to do what you like to do. And when I look at travelers, I think, you know, adventurous, curious, independent, and that's who I, I want to work with. And when I did a little bit of background um, research on working with, you know, travelers and also working on people that are getting ready to retire, <clears throat> two thirds of people over 50 say that they want to have uh, retirement be a significant part, or excuse me, travel be a significant part of their retirement, yet only a third really do any planning. So I thought, hey, great, natural fit. And I've been doing that for um, just over a year. Actually, we're, we're getting uh, closer to, to two years. And um, at, at this point in time, uh, I'm loving every minute of it, and I'm really happy I made that that choice. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so, uh, you are like myself, a certified financial planner, but you also have a CFA, the chartered financial analyst. So, so tell us about the CFA. Um, you have a unique, unique in the sense that you have the, the CFA and the CFP. So a lot of people, you know, have the CFA and a lot have the CFP, but you have both. Um, and so you're, you're kind of the elite of the elite. (laughs) Well, I certainly didn't set out to be the elite of the elite. I have been an equity analyst for many years and researching stocks and working mostly with investments. And to do that, 
the CFA really makes uh, the most sense. And the CFA is similar to the CFP. And the way it differs is, for example, the CFP, which I hope most people uh, know, is really becoming a um, more of an expert when working with people to do financial planning. And it's all stages and um, all of the different aspects of financial planning. Well, the CFA is really that, but for investments. <laughs> so you really dive in a lot deeper on how to analyze investments. Um, there's portfolio management. There is all of the theory in involving the markets, uh, whether it's bond, stock, etc. Um, so it's really a specialization on the investment side of what we do as CFPs. Yeah. Yeah. I initially got that uh, as an equity analyst. And then when I decided that I wanted to uh, start my own firm and become um, a financial advisor, I just thought it was natural to then go ahead and um, get the CFP really for my own benefit, just because there was so much I wanted to learn. And I thought that was going to be the best way that I could uh, learn it. Yeah. I think they both complement each other very well. Um, you know, the CFP was, uh, it has, you know, certain requirements. You have to have experience. Uh, you know, generally it's a three-year minimum experience in the financial services. Uh, and then you have to have the education and um, you have to pass the test. And I think I spent close to six months studying for the test. I did a live review course over a weekend. and. It was grueling. It was an all-day exam, computer-based, and I didn't know if I passed at the end of it. And they don't give you a score. They just say if you pass or fail. Um, I passed. I sat that after you push submit, um, it spins for a few seconds, and I sat there. It was the longest few seconds of my life. And when it said, congratulations, you passed, I literally, this is the first time ever in my life, I got emotional over a test. I literally like swelled up and about started crying um, because it was such a tough exam and just meant a, a lot to me. And I say that the CFA is grueling. It's, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a three test process um, just on the testing side. It's three separate tests, um, and each one, the pass rate, I don't know, maybe you can <laughs> talk about. Um, sure. It, it has changed quite a bit and, and continues to change. When I did it, it was three portions, which I believe it still is. Yeah. Um, and the first portion of it, so the very first test, is multiple choice. And then number two and number three are essay. Yeah. I believe that may have changed, but anyway, when I did it, that's, that's how it was. And the um, most difficult part of that is that each one was at that time, again, I think this has changed, but at that time was only offered once a year. So if you did fail, you had to wait an entire year to take that uh, portion again. So at a minimum, it, it was three years uh, to do. And 
the pass rates are very low and um, they're usually quite a bit below uh, 50% on average. So you absolutely need to know that this is what you want to do. Yeah. It's a couple year process um, from the testing standpoint compared to, you know, I spent six months. I had the education and experience um, that I had to go through, but I also, but I spent, you know, six months. Um, I think a lot of people say they spend upwards of a hundred plus hours studying for the CFP exam um, just to kind of put some context to it. And so this, we're talking about several, a couple years um, that you're going through the testing process. So. Right. I, I knew that once January 1st hit, I was busy until Memorial Day yeah. for, for three straight years. Yeah. So, a little cool. Um, all right. So, before we dive into our topic for today, I always like to start out with the 15 minutes of fluff. We need to get an intro thing um, for that. So, but uh, you ready for it? I'm ready. All right. So, when is the last time you wore a shirt and tie? Shirt and tie. <laughs> that unfortunately it was probably a funeral oh. and yeah um not to bum every to start bumming everybody out but you know i, th I think that that was uh the last time and you know the, the crazy part about it was i think i was beyond me and the funeral director were the only ones wearing a suit and tie okay okay uh was this back home no no that, that was uh, here in Pittsburgh. Okay. okay. And, you know, not, not, to, not to make light uh, of it, but, you know, it's just like, again, I think just kind of easing into that old man uh, part of life where I am now the only one dressing up for certain uh, events. So I, I, I was trying to go with the whole COVID not dressing up and then <laughs> you and I, we work remotely from home you had a you had a, a office that you worked at um but uh yeah i don't dress up anymore um if everybody could see me um i'm in my uh eddie bauer um pullover fleece pullover that's how you know i'm old i wear eddie bauer um because i used to think it was old man clothing when i was a kid <laughs> and a t-shirt and my royal set so 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 what's what's worse eddie bauer or uh, ll bean I think they're both great, right? <laughs> no, LLB might be a little more pricey, but I don't know. I don't know. Some I, cool I, dudes. The thing I love about LLB is I just order it all online. Yeah. And uh, yeah, don't even have to leave the couch. Yeah. No. Um, so on a brighter note, the last time I wore a suit and tie, a shirt and tie, both, was my brother-in-law's wedding on March 14th, 2020 in Lawrence, Kansas. So it was a good time. And it was right. It was the week before like everything shut down with the pandemic. And we were going into that week looking at each other like, is this thing still on? What's, what's going on? We had it and then everything shut down the next week. So if it would have been a week later, they would have been along with all the other folks that had to reschedule all their plans for weddings. Um, this year so it was a great time um congratulations jeff and denise in-laws so 
Um, That's a much happier story than mine. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was in Lawrence, so that wasn't the happy part about it. Um, you know, coming from Manhattan, KUK State. Um, but uh, actually, it was at a really awesome venue. Uh, it was right on the river, and it was this big open um, open venue um, that was right on the river. So it was it was really cool. So um, and we had a great time. All right, so this kind of gets into your niche, niche. Which do you prefer, niche, niche? Well, I'm a niche man. <laughs> niche, me too. Niche just sounds too fancy for me. Yeah, exactly. Um, so best travel or vacation spot you've ever been on? So I always hate when people ask me this question. This is right up your alley, though. Yeah, right? I am usually not someone that is like, okay, best. Number one, yeah, this, is the, this sure. is the greatest. There's good and bad in absolutely every place. And if you, if you can't see that, um, maybe, maybe traveling is not a, a thing for you. Because undoubtedly, things are going to happen to you while you travel that aren't going to be great. You have to roll with the punches and, and get through it. But I will tell you that I've done a lot of thinking through all of this, and I, I'm sure that a lot of people that love to travel have done a lot of thinking. Maybe those bucket list trips kind of have been moved more to the uh, front. You know, it's always um, you, you go through life, and it's there. There, there's always time to do that later. There's always yeah. You know, I, I've been thinking, putting a lot of thought into that. One of the places that I have been that I loved and I would like to go back and is on my short list is uh, Japan. Japan? Japan. Okay. Food is phenomenal. The I, I'm a city guy. I'd love to go to the cities. Uh, I'd like to go to see the country as well, but I just the, you are so overwhelmed by visual stimulation, sound that it's just a being like no other place on earth. And um, that is definitely uh, one place that uh, I would like to get back to. I, I, I was there and I got completely hooked on ramen and, <laughs> you know, I try to make it myself and it's, you know, this is something that takes these chefs their entire life to learn how to make. And then it's like, you know, 12 to 14 hours to get it right. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to throw something together in a, in a half hour and, I can't do it, but you know, that that's definitely something that uh, I'd like to get back there and do a little ramen tour. Oh, nice. I mean, I think I've got a pretty mean ramen recipe, you know, fresh out of the, the wrapper. Um, I like to spice it up with some veggies and whatnot, but <laughs> there you <laughs> so, go. sounds like I need to uh, try out some real ramen. So you, uh, might not, you might not want to do it cause then you can't go back. Okay. Okay. So, uh, you're really making me rethink mine, actually. I always point to my trip to Maine with my wife for her uh, big birthday. Um, and that was an awesome time. Uh, we So we flew into Boston. I'd never been to Boston. So for me, this is a little easier because I don't get out much. So finding your best best vacation or travel spot um, is, is a little easier for me. I, I'm not the world traveler that you are. Um, but uh, our trip to Maine, we flew into Boston, stayed the night there in kind of a, um, you know, nicer motel. 
ho- motel, nicer hotel in downtown. Um, and we went and walked around downtown and, um, it was, it was pretty sweet. And, uh, and then the next morning we got up and drove to Gloucester. Um, it's a fishing town right there on the ocean. And we went out and did, a uh, whale watching and that was awesome. It was, it was, uh, nasty conditions out. It was raining and everybody was inside under the deck and everything. And, um, I was standing on the back of the boat, uh, just under the overhang. And so I wasn't getting rained on, but you know, water splashing up and, um, it was chilly out. This was, um, about this time, uh, middle of October, uh, back in 20, 2018. Yeah. And, uh, and it was awesome. I'd never done that before. And everybody's like, do you get seasick? I'm like, I don't know. And I didn't, but, uh, I was talking to a British lady that was there who I think she's from Austin, but she had the British accent and everything. And she'd been doing this stuff. Like she was acting like she was a pro. And then about halfway through, I see she's in the bathroom crouched over to the toilet and, uh, I think we had maybe uh, half a, do- a dozen people <laughs> that got seasick. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's something you want to mess with. If if you're unsure, it can uh, it can turn ugly. If you're you know prone to motion sickness and you know. Yeah, I just I didn't know. So, but I I guess not. So, um, I'm still I'm still hoping you're gonna go to Maldives for me and and give me a report on that. That's kind of one of our things. So, um, disclaimer: we're in a weekly study group, uh, mastermind group. That sounds better. And uh, I've been pitching this idea for a while of you need to go to Maldives and write a blog about it and write it off as a business expense, and we'll bleep that out for the IRS so they can't hear. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Everything <laughs> legally. Uh, but uh, Maldives is fascinating to me. It's fascinating, and it's also s- freaks me out. But and so again, this kind of gets into what is your dream bucket list travel spot that you haven't done yet? You 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 said Japan. You've been there, but what's like the the number one? I haven't been there. Whether it's Maldives or maybe with everything going on, maybe outer space. What do you think about that? <laughs> no, I'm I'm not an outer space guy. I, suffocating and and some ugly death on the launch pad is just not for me. <laughs> um, you know, w- one place is Australia. Australia, okay. Yeah, and you know, kind of going back to that whole thinking about bucket lists, thinking do it while you can. You know, that that's a a long trip. It's a, it's a long ways away. Yeah. Do it while you're young. You know, and and. While I'm down there, you know, how how do you go to all that way and not hit New Zealand? Yeah. Um, so that is, you know, very high on the list of uh, places I'd like to go. More sheep than people, right, in New Zealand? Isn't that what Maybe? they – I don't know. I don't know. Or is that Ireland? I don't know. I don't know. So uh, would you go scuba diving while you're down there? I am not a scuba diver. Okay. Because to me, that's kind of like outer space. Like – the I yeah. can't control my environment, so either one kind of freaks me out. I'm I prefer the land, just staying on land. See, I'm okay with I'm okay with flying. So my dad was a pilot, so I'm I'm fine with flying. It's just outer space and underwater kind of freak me out. 
So I don't know. No, that, that's funny you say that. I, I actually took a scuba um, class and after like three or four days, I was just kind of like, not for me. Okay. I, I didn't like, I didn't like the feeling. I, I felt um, just not, not that I was going to suffocate, but just not necessarily. There's so many things you were thinking about that it was hard to, for me to enjoy. And maybe that, and that's just my personality. Love snorkeling though. I, I can, uh, I can swim like crazy and uh, see enough uh, that way. Who knows? Maybe one of these days I'll, I'll try it again, but uh, not this point. Yeah. Uh, I don't feel like I'd be in control. I think that's my problem. My, my wife says I have control issues. <laughs> so that, and I think I watched too many of the Jaws movies when I was a kid. So when I was in the deep end of a swimming pool, I thought Jaws was going to get me. Um, <laughs> you know, makes no sense. But yeah, little kids' minds go everywhere. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so Australia and then New Zealand is for me. So there's several places I want to go in the States. Um, I'm not much, I'm not a big international traveler. That's not, I mean, there's some really cool historical stuff that I'd like to go see, but I, I like, I think there's enough that I haven't seen here in the States, um, that I'd love to go see. Um, so that, or if I, I was forced to go outside of the States, I'd probably go somewhere where I can find the crystal clear water where I can see the bottom, you know, right. Uh, maybe jam out to some Kenny Chesney or something on the beach. I don't know that or that or something that's like historical, but it's off limits. So, okay. you know, kind of adrenaline rush, like I shouldn't be doing this, but I, it's awesome. I don't know. I don't know what that would be, but so. Baby steps, Kyle. Just a little, at a little at a time. Maybe get down to the Caribbean. So, um, so being the investment expert, what has been your personal best investment pick? Wow, that that's tough. You know, it's funny because um, as a an equity analyst, you go into interviews throughout your your uh, career, and the question that you're always asked is what was your worst pick? Oh yeah. Because, because they want to know how you, your, your thought process and how you react and you know, if you can come forward because it, it with a, a, your worst pick, because if you know, the work, the worst thing you can do um, as an person that's being interviewed is basically say, Oh, I, I've never had any, I'm, I'm, you know, just, I'm amazing. All my picks are great. Yeah, because uh, you, you have to you have to be humble in, in the industry. So, um, going back, and, and this will be a company that nobody's ever heard of. So maybe you just delete all of this and determine that uh, you know, since it wasn't Apple or, or something like that, that the, there wouldn't be any interest. But this was way back before um, I think a lot of people were aware of spinoffs. Okay. Yeah. Not, not to get too complicated, but a spinoff is where a company um, takes a division and spins it off to their shareholders. So if you own the company, you would then own a second company and they are then go from one stock to two stocks. And this was an oil company that was spinning off a um, leisure boating company. Oh, wow. So, right. And, and you have a lot of people that own this. Um, 
it was a oil energy um, type type company, and they want to own an oil energy type company, and then all of a sudden they have a boating company, which they don't want. And yeah. so what what normally happens in, in a situation like that is they sell it, and it gets hit, uh, goes down, and this was a, a you know we'll go. I think we're going to get into this later, but um, the market cap was very small on it. And so not a lot of people were looking at it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, because no one was interested in the company, it became extremely uh, cheap. I bought it and it did pretty phenomenal over the years. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's going back to your your comment about tell us your worst pick. It's, it's kind of like the interview question of what is your greatest weakness? It's like, I don't want to tell you that. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm too motivated, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. I, my, uh, my best investment pick is also probably my worst investment pick. Um, because I, I think it's kind of all relative, right? So Tesla, I bought Tesla when, what it was at like 196, let's say. And I held it for a couple of years and sold it when it was at 297. Um, it just got too volatile for me. So, I mean, I, I, I gained a hundred bucks on it. Wow. Um, but now it's trading at like absurd levels. So it's, I, I haven't checked it last time, but it's in the thousands that it's trading at now. I'm like, well, oh, well, so that and I bought Sprint stock, um, which you're like Sprint. I bought it, uh, I think at like four and a half a share. And then they just recently merged with uh, T-Mobile or were acquired by T-Mobile. Um, and uh, I think, uh, I don't remember what I got out of it in like eight, eight something a share. So close to double the money. But I mean, it was so small. These were just teeny tiny investments. And I went with Sprint because it was, uh, headquartered here. And I was like, Oh, local, you know, these were a while ago. So, um, I wouldn't be doing this now per se. So, right. It's funny. You, it's funny. You mentioned that uh, about Tesla and, you know, that's a typical situation of, it's very easy to go back and look 20 years ago and see, wow, look how well this company did. All I had to do is buy it 20 years ago and I'd be rich. Yeah. But you also have to sit through the volatility and yeah. you have to realize that along the way um, it may have dropped 50%, 60%, 70%. And you had to have been okay with that at the time, which looking at a 20 year chart after the fact is a lot easier than um, waking up every day and uh, seeing it flash up on your phone and, and be like, uh, I just lost half my money. Yeah. Yeah. On paper, on paper. <laughs> um, not so. to not to get too too uh, in into the best pick um, question, but another one came to me, and kind of relates to this um, concept. Have you did you remember Lycos? Yes, the uh, dog, the search engine. Yeah, Lycos, go get it. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Um, so I actually owned that um, for a little while, and it was, if I remember correctly, it was spun off. 
again, the spinoff from another company. And I owned like two or three shares. It was something, you know, it was one of those uh, instances where it was too small to even matter. So I didn't pay any attention to it. Um, and it doubled, tripled, quadrupled. I can't even remember. Maybe it went up 10 times. Oh, wow. And lucky for me, they were then, um, I believe, bought out by somebody else. So I was able to cash in at, at the, the, the top. But the only reason that I was able to do any of that is because it was so insignificant <laughs> that I didn't pay no attention to it. So yeah. there is something to be said. Um, it's a lot easier to do when it's, it's not a lot of your money at stake. Yeah. So um, last question I ask everybody, thinking of baseball here. Um, I guess congratulations to the Dodgers uh, winning right. the series last night. What would your walk-up song be? So I would say pretty much anything by ACDC. Okay. Like it. I will come up with an obscure one just because I'm one of those people that if I've got a, a favorite band, uh, you know, my favorite song is never going to be their most popular. It's not going to be um, shook me all night long, for example, ACDC. So I'm going to say shake your foundations, ACDC. Okay. I'll have to give you something to do uh, over the weekend is uh, check that out. Yeah, I will check that out. Um, as for me, um, as you might know, mine changes from episode to episode. Uh, <laughs> it has. So uh, I think for this week, in the spirit of uh, the heat of the debate and everything, um, Lee Greenwald popped up on Spotify. And uh, I was jamming out to God Bless the USA. <laughs> you know, I, I like that song. So, um, But uh, I remember the first time I heard it. I think it was in 1993, the Wichita Classic. It was a kids wrestling tournament, and they uh, before the finals they had a uh, a duo or a trio sing it, and uh, it was the first time I had heard it, and I um, still remember it to this day. So it had some sort of effect on me. So, but uh, cool. Well, hey, 15 minutes fluff. Uh, in the books. So let's get into our topic for today. And um, so today, taking a deeper dive into investments, and I want to bring you on with your background. Um, in the previous episode with Rocky, uh, Rocky Ziegler, the third, RZ3, we kind of gave a brief overview of stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and ETFs. We we're talking about, you know, how to, how to get started investing. But then now it's okay. We we talked about the the why, the what, and the how of investing. But now this is getting into the actual investments that you're going to invest in. And so, um, as I mentioned, I, I figured we cover kind of the main ones of stocks, bonds, and then mutual funds and ETFs, and you know, dive a, a layer deeper um, of how these things are different and kind of some of the characteristics behind them and. Um, so I guess the, the first thing I wanted to talk about is stocks, um, and just stocks are shares of a company. Um, it's, it's a, it's a piece of the pie. It's a piece of the ownership pie. Um, and, uh, I'll, I'll kind of have you take it off on, on that. Sure. Uh, I mean, you, you pretty much exactly hit it, you know, is 
as far as you know what is a stock when when you look at a company um, they will issue a certain number of shares and the each share um, it can be owned by uh, an individual. And, and for example, if a, a company has a million shares, well, you can buy one share or you can be, buy two and you can even uh, get into the whole fractional thing. But you are basically owning a portion of that business. You're owning um, a portion of everything that they do and their uh, ultimate earnings if you look at it, and that's where earnings per share comes from, each share that you own has a portion of the overall uh, earnings of that company. And that is, uh, I guess, how you would look at it as your share. Yeah. So um, it's quite a bit you know, different. And I know we're, we're going to get in, into bonds a little bit later, but... <clears throat> What your goal is when you own a stock is that the company will grow over time. They will grow their earnings. They will sell more products. And the price of the stock that you own will appreciate as all of this is happening. It's an ownership stake in the company. But in most cases, your stock, if you own one share of you know, say a million or 10 million shares, it's a very small owner piece, ownership piece. Um, and so you don't really get the say-so about what goes on in the company, right? And so that's where these bit larger investors like uh, Warren Buffett and those sorts of guys have a little more um, uh, uh, influence, if you will, on, on the company um, and what they do. So because they own millions of shares of a company oftentimes. So, um, but I think it gets into, well, why, why invest in stocks? And I, I think you alluded to it with why we buy stocks in the first place. It's, it's the easiest way to be a business owner, right? You're owning a business. It's a passive way to own a business. Um, and so it's not a hands-on thing, but it's, you're buying the stock in anticipation that your stock is going to be worth more in the future because it's a good company. Ideally, you want to invest in a good company that's going to grow um, and that it grows because it increases its revenue by selling more products or services. In return, it's more money that gets to go back to the owners of the business, right? And so um, you ideally want to be able to share in those profits. So, No, exactly. And you, you bring up a good point. It's a way of owning a business passively where you don't have to, you know, get in there and do the work yourself. You you're actually have a team of um, executives that are, you know, really working for you. You're the shareholders. So they're, um, you know, they're, you're their kind of ultimate boss. Yeah. Um, and you, it's exactly right. I mean, and, and, and you are um, hoping and history has shown that the stock market has been a great place to invest because of this growth uh, over time, you know, not to, to use a bad word, but capitalism when it works. I think it's a great word. <laughs> when it when it works, um, you know, shareholders tend to do well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, 
Um, it's capitalism is great because if it's if if it's pure capitalism, and I'm a company, I'm doing well because people are buying my stuff, right? And if they don't believe I'm putting out a good product or you know, we have ethical issues, they stop buying my stuff in, you know, kind of general terms thinking about this. And so um, it's letting the market dictate, you know, um, which I think is a good thing, letting the people choose. Um, we talk about voting. Um, it's all the commercials you see right now. Um, it's on the banner, the LED ribbon banner at the World Series vote, or maybe that was an NFL game. Um, but it's, it's everybody saying vote. This is your way to vote is, um, choosing the companies that you want to do business with. Right. Um, so, uh, so now I think it kind of goes into another question of, well, how are these companies different? And I think one of the ways we, we talk about it is, uh, market capitalization or for short, we call it market cap. And so, with market cap, it breaks up companies in terms of large cap, large capitalization, mid cap, middle capitalization, and small cap, small capitalization. I know there's, you know, uh, mega cap and, and uh, micro cap, you know, the, but the three, you know, you talk, typically hear about are large, mid, and small cap. Um, and so maybe we can dive into that a little bit about what separates those and maybe i don't know kind of the way i like to think about it is large cap or names are household names that you know right your apples your alphabet which is google's parent company um facebook amazon johnson and johnson a lot of tech companies there uh mid cap are going to be some of the lesser household names um i mean what Domino's is still still mid cap, I think. Um, so everybody knows them, but it's not as prominent as, you know, say an Amazon or a Facebook or something like that. Um, and then, uh, and then, uh, small cap are going to be kind of more obscure, uh, companies that, you know, aren't known nationwide. So one of them here is a company I used to work for UMB financial, UMB bank, um, uh, the financial holding company for the bank. Um, and, Everybody around here knows it, but most people on the coast are like, what is UMB? What is UMB Financial? And so that's kind of how I distinguish them. Um, feel free to elaborate on that, your, your take on it. Yeah, well, within each of those groups, you know, large, mid, and, and small, I, I think you're correct in, you know, people will recognize the names of the larger cap companies most likely. I'm sure I could come up with uh, hundreds that people wouldn't wouldn't know. Um, but as you work your way down um, and you get to small cap, yeah, sure, there's going to be some small cap companies out there that uh, you're familiar with. But for the most part, that that's correct. Um, now, as we go through time, things change because of inflation, and um, you know what makes a large cap will change over time. I think when um, I've always looked at them, when you're looking at, for example, large cap companies, you're talking about $10 billion and above. And when you're looking at mid cap, 
that was always the range was two to 10. Yeah. And then small, anything um, lower than that. And the reason, the reason that that is um, important is just that the fact that when you go through time, um, if companies are successful, they will move up through the ranks. And the larger cap companies are more likely, for example, to have international operations. They're more likely to have more than one um, business unit. You know, they might, you know, if you go back in time and you look at some of the conglomerates that were out there, they could be involved in energy, medical, finance, across the board. And the reason I bring this up is when you have a conglomerate like that, over time, they tend to be a little bit less volatile on average. And that's only because when you go through a um, economic cycle, some of their businesses will do well when others are not, um, and vice versa. Sounds like diversification. Exactly. <laughs> diversification within that individual stock. And so as you get smaller, however, and you say, for example, get into the very small companies, the odds are they only do one business. Um, and they often are, say, just domestic. Some of them will have inter some international operations, but not nearly as many, for example, as when you're comparing them to the large cap. And when you have a company that is, for example, completely dependent on one thing, it can be more volatile. And so that's when, you know, a lot of people hear that, okay, large caps, you know, can be a little bit more um, or can be less volatile, can be safer, if you will. Um, that's what they're thinking about when you compare them to small caps. Having said that, on a one-off basis, anything can happen with a large cap, anything can happen with a small cap to the downside. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, So I guess backtrack here a little bit and talk about, so market capitalization refers to how much a company is worth as, as uh, this is coming from Investopedia. Market capitalization refers to how much a company is worth as determined by the stock market. It's defined as the total market value of all outstanding shares. And so the way you calculate a company's market cap is to multiply the number of outstanding shares that they have that individuals can buy and then times the price of one share. So that one share that you own, so that um, one share of, uh, you know, say Sprint that I owned for four and a half dollars um, times that by the number of shares that they have outstanding that people could um, trade and purchase. Um, and that gives you your market cap. And so, uh, as you mentioned, large cap is typically 10 billion or more mid cap, 2 billion to 10 billion. And then small cap, this says 3 million to 2 billion. I'm wondering how that adjusts with, you know, is, um, with inflation and, and whatnot. But um, yeah, it's so when you're talking about an index like the S&P 500 index, um, it's, you know, that and the Dow Jones are the two most commonly um, referred to. The S&P 500 index is a large cap index. It's the 500 largest companies, publicly traded companies in the United States. And, and so it's 
the idea being those are more stable companies. Um, you know, your Apple, your Alpha, your Google, Facebook, those things, they're more stable than say your small cap company. Um, but on the, on the flip side of that, I think this, this is the thing, um, that kind of gets left out, but, uh, small cap, I, there's more opportunity for growth. If you, I, I think about it in terms of, you know, it's a lot easier for a small cap company to go from 1 million in sales to 3 million in sales compared to Apple going from a billion in sales to 3 billion in sales, right? Just larger numbers you're working with, the harder it is to, to grow it by that same um, percentage as like a small cap company. Exactly. Any, anything else you want to add on on market cap? I, not really. I mean, I think uh, I think you did a good job um, going through that and, and hitting um, all of the important kind of issues. When you are looking at, at small cap um, companies, you normally do have um, at least some of them. Some of them are, are small cap because maybe they were large cap at one point and they just business didn't go as they thought and they um <clears throat> they shrank in value and became small cap but i would say on average you have companies that are earlier in their business um or their their entire uh, business lives yeah. and you can find uh, i would say exciting companies with products that have the potential for substantial growth and on average, again, it is easier for them to grow uh, products just because they are not, for example, Apple everywhere. Apple really has to grow by um, either coming up with new products, widening their usage um, of their products that they have now, like the iPhone. But obviously, that's much more difficult when you have a um, worldwide population that is pretty saturated with, with yeah. that. Yeah. And then, you know, I, there are downsides to small cap. And so large cap we view as more stable, small cap, there's more potential for growth, but there's also more potential that those companies could go belly up, right? They're not as um, developed in their uh, business life cycle um, that, you know, companies like Apple and, and Google are. So um, there's pros and cons to each. So, um, and then maybe talk a little bit about value versus growth because, um, there's a, uh, the Morningstar, um, style matrix box. Um, it's nine different boxes. And, um, on one side you have small, you have your large, mid, small, um, on the cap. And then on the other axis, you have your value, your core or blend. Um, and, and then growth. And so, um, these all kind of intertwine when we're talking about large cap, there's large cap value, there's large cap growth, there's small cap value, there's small cap growth. And so maybe touch on that real quick about value and growth and what separates the two of those. So every company has, um, a portion of value and a, a portion of growth. And you'll talk to a lot of people that'll say, well, you know, value and growth are there. They, they go hand in hand. It's hard to, and, and it's hard to separate the, the two, 
when you look at different um, valuation metrics that a company might have, and when I say valuat- valuation metrics, that could be the price of the stock divided by the earnings or the price of the stock divided by the book value of the company. <clears throat> when those are low, they tend to be labeled as value stocks. So for example, if you have a company that uh, has a price to earnings ratio, and I hope I'm not getting too too far into the weeds, tell me if I am, Kyle. No, you're good. A price to earning ratio of five, that would be considered a value stock. If it has a price to earnings ratio of say 100, that would be lumped in into the growth. And when I say that, if you look at, um, you mentioned the S&P 500, well, there are other indexes as well that are specifically value index or growth index. And that's what they use to determine which companies go in the value index and which companies go in the, the growth or metrics like priced earnings. Uh, for example, uh, if you've heard of the Russell uh, value index or, or and, and growth index, they use price to book. And, and so using those metrics, will determine whether you are labeled as a value company or a growth company. Now, you could be both, and it, it's not uh, automatically one bucket or the other. You could have a very low valuation, but yet your prospects look very good and expectations are for high growth going forward. So it's hard to separate them in exactly down the middle and say, you must be value or you must be growth. But after saying that, a lot of these indexes, that's what they do, just because they have to have um, a way of determining in their minds what a value stock is and what a growth stock is. Yeah. And and I think people uh, oftentimes look at it as value. You're getting a company for cheap. Um, Whereas growth, it's, we know this this company. I like. We know this company has a bright future, so we're willing to pay more for it. So um, I don't want to say overpaying, but that's that's kind of um, to kind of boil it down. And I, I kind of think of it as uh, value is kind of more like the cash cow. A lot of times, you're expecting to get a dividend from it, dividend payers. Um, Whereas uh, growth is kind of like a shooting star where it's uh, has the trajectory to um, grow rapidly, um, but we're not hoping it fizzles out like a shooting star. It you know, maybe eventually turns into a cash cow. Um, so. no, I th- yeah, you're, you're exactly right. When a lot of people, when they look at value companies, they, they think of um, maybe something uh, went a little bit wrong with the company and they're struggling for one reason or another, or they're just not expected to have rapid growth because they're in an industry that, um, like you said, might be more cash cow. Um, they might be, they might have a great product. It's just not growing rapidly. Whereas growth. Yeah. You've, you've got companies that might have exciting new products that are expected to grow, um, and grow rapidly. And because of that, people will pay, uh, on average, more for those companies. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's let's shift our next uh, investment option. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it, um, but uh, and you know maybe with your equity 
background. We're, we're more, I'm more into the, the equity side of things. And so, um, and for, for, you know, my typical listener, I think we're younger. And so we're, we're going to be more stock based and, but it's important to know, um, about the bond side of things. And so just bonds, we talked about it in the last episode. It's, it's basically loaning a company or the government money, your money. And in return, you're getting an interest payment. And then at the end of the loan term, you get your money back in an ideal world. And so the thing we talked about with stocks, stability, growth, with bonds, they're viewed as more stable than stocks, generally speaking. Um, and <clears throat> But there's less growth potential. And, and, and so um, you're, you're really seeking the income that the bonds generate and stability of, of your investment, you know. So, yeah, it's uh, no ownership. It's just you're a creditor of a company. And uh, maybe, maybe dive in there. Yeah, I, th- I think um, you, d- you did a good job of, of describing um, kind of what a bond is. One thing that I would add and to be cognizant of is I think you did a very good job of explaining investment grade bonds because as you move your way down uh, into uh, bonds that are what you know we would consider junk and that just means that um, a rating agency has given them a lower rating they can be pretty volatile and you can really uh, find yourself uh, getting in trouble there um, so there can be a lot of volatility now with bonds that are more highly rated what is considered investment grade um, very highly rated triple a double a you're pretty safe as far as um, from the threat of bankruptcy. Now, there are other things like interest rates um, that can move the the value of your bond. But as far as you getting paid back, what you put into it and um, the interest that you um, expected when you first got into it, you're probably going to be looking in in good shape. I know we're we're going to get into it a, a little bit uh, later, but really, I would say individual bonds are for people that you know have a, a great interest there. I don't think that your average investor there's really much need um, for an individual bond because you can um, why not buy a, a group of them um, that is you know in in the a group of bonds that are managed by uh, an expert and a team of experts um, who can really dig into the financials of a company because, you know, that's really what it takes to invest in bonds is like you have to be very familiar with um, the uh, financial statements of, of each company that you invest in um, because, you know, you, you can, uh, you can run into uh, trouble and, you know, if you, if you own one and, you know, I guess we're getting back to diversification it can go bankrupt. So that's something to be uh, aware of. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, maybe I use this term too much um, on the pod, but uh, bonds aren't exactly sexy in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> right. They're, they're kind of boring. Um, in my mind, I know some you know people that deal with bonds probably 
think differently, but so yeah, they, they have um, credit ratings, as you mentioned. So there's two of the major credit rating ratings agencies out there are Moody's and standard and Poor's. Um, so for standard and Poor's, they start with triple a and they go down to AA, a, and then you get down to triple B and then um, double B and then B and then triple C, CC. Yeah. Once you get, so everything between triple A and triple B are still considered investment grade. What you mentioned earlier, those are investment grade bonds, um, meaning the risk of default is low on those. Um, the further you go down, the more risk you implement. When you get past triple B, um, you get into junk bonds. Um, you think they could have came up with a better name. Um, it's not the most attractive thing to be call, be uh, purchasing an investment called junk. <laughs> but the idea with those, they're a higher risk, but they also pay more for the risk. And so it gets into the whole risk reward, um, which we might talk about a little bit later. But, but yeah, I'll include a, a link um, to a lot of the stuff we're talking about in the show notes. And this Investopedia thing has a good uh, chart breaking down bond ratings and, and whatnot. So, but yeah, so let's shift gears. Um, you talked, you alluded to it about diversification. And so our next investment choice um, that you'll hear a lot about is going to be mutual funds. And the way we describe these is it's a basket of stocks and or bonds that are inside purchased inside the mutual fund. And then the mutual fund, you can purchase shares or they call them units of the mutual fund that owns that basket of stocks and or bonds. Um, and I, I guess the kind of getting into the reason why we do this is one diversification. Uh, I mean, I think that's the main point. It's diversification, right? Um, if you only own one stock, you're putting all your eggs into one basket, so to speak. Um, whereas when you buy a mutual fund, you have several eggs in one basket. But then if you wanted to diversify on your own and not buy a mutual fund, when we're talking about you know stock prices of Tesla being in the thousands of dollars, trying to acquire a basket of stocks can be very expensive. Um, you know, buying a whole share of 30 different companies to make a diversified portfolio, that gets pretty expensive if you don't have that sort of money. And so this is a way, cheap way, easy, I don't want to say cheap. It's an easy way, efficient way to diversify your portfolio um, by buying mutual funds. And Yeah, I, you know, the main reason at, the, at this point in time to you know, buy a mutual fund is like you said, for the diversification. And it's just a huge headache to put together a diversified portfolio of individual stocks or bonds because each time that you buy a stock or a bond there's a lot of work that goes in there you have to know the company you have to know the management you have to understand their products in the marketplace what you or what is ideal i think for most investors especially investors that don't really have an interest in doing all that work is hiring uh, someone that does do that for a living and has a team and has the resources um, to put together a portfolio. Or, and then, and I guess I'm kind of maybe going out of order here, um, that would be, you know, if, if they're putting in stocks um, that 
they think they're going to outperform a market, that would be active investing. Mm -hmm. um, the other reason that you would potentially be in a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund is because of um, you're more interested in passive investing. And that is basically matching an index. Um, if you would prefer to do that, it's still a headache to follow that index, trade in and out of the stocks uh, or bonds, whatever is in there. And it's just a um, product that takes away a lot of the headaches of doing these uh, individually yourself. Why not uh, pay a little bit of money to have someone else do it, to have someone else watch it uh, and perform all those actions for you? Yeah. And all, that, those are all great points. And then also, I think uh, another thing kind of looking at history is when these were started to buy individual stocks, you had to you know, call up your broker and you paid a commission. And so, you know, buying 30 different stocks on a, you know, say a $25 commission to purchase each, each, uh, each of those gets pretty expensive. Whereas you pay just one, one, you know, say, say $25 fee to buy the mutual fund where you get that instant diversification. So it was kind of a efficiency cost cutting measure of developing these, um, is, is another point I think to make. Um, but yeah, it's you, you have a portfolio manager that is managing, um, these, uh, this basket of stocks for you. Rocky compared this to think of it like a public swimming pool. And so the people swimming in the pool are the companies or the bonds. And then you have the lifeguards, which are the portfolio managers. And, you know, they, they blow their whistle and, and, and tell, uh, tell you to get out of the pool if you're misbehaving, not, not performing well, right? Uh, put you in timeout. Um, they're overseeing the pool. And that's kind of a good way to think about um, how a mutual fund works. Um, <clears throat> but then there's, there's cost to it, right? There's uh, an expense ratio. Um, and that expense ratios vary depending on whether it's a passive um, strategy or if it's a, an active strategy. If it's passive, it, they're generally less expensive. And when we're talking about expense, um, so if you go look up a, a fund out there, you'll see that they have a, an average, an expense ratio. Um, and uh, according to Investopedia, the average expense ratio for an actively managed mutual fund is between 0.5% um, and 1%. Um, they get higher than 1%. If they exceed 2.5%, that's pretty rare and very expensive. Uh, but for passive strategies, index funds, um, this says that the typical ratio is about 0.2%. So in our world, we'd say that's 30 30 basis points below kind of the low point for active management, 0.3% less. I know we're getting into a lot of uh, numbers here, so um, I'll post a link to it. But yeah, passive is is generally cheaper because there's less that needs to be done. It's a sit it and forget it and just monitor the situation. We're active. We're actively analyzing, picking, and choosing what we want in the portfolio. Um, and so to pay those people, there's an expense ratio. And that's that's where that expense ratio comes in. It pays for 
um, the portfolio manager for their services. Is that kind of? Yeah, you, you, you nailed it. And, you know, as far as the um, expenses, one that you want to, yeah, I think, make sure that you're aware of are any sort of um, fees that are involved with um, buying and selling. So mutual funds, you know, depending on um, how you or where you find them or, or where you buy them, there are load funds and uh, no load funds. And let me know if you would prefer me not to, to go down this path. Yeah, but, no. Um, and this is probably good for a deeper dive in a later episode, just analyzing uh, mutual funds and everything that's involved with them. But as you alluded to, they have share classes where different share classes will have different fees, um, like commissions, upfront commissions. So um, say it has a 5% commission up front, a front-loaded commission of 5%, and you invest $100,000 into the fund, your fund is instantly worth $95,000 instead of your $100,000 because they took 5% off up front. And the, the important part of it, of it is if there is an upfront fee, be aware of it before you make a purchase. Yeah. If there's a back end fee, be aware of it because some funds will actually charge you based on how long you've uh, held them. Mm -hmm. um, so you always want to make sure that you hold them um, or at least be aware that there is going to be a back end fee if you're, if you're selling. So I guess my point I'm just trying to make is be aware of all of the uh, expenses involved, whether it's an expense, when you buy or sell or the over um, riding expenses of the operating expenses over time, like you've mentioned earlier. Yeah. And then also uh, uh, trading fees. So just to purchase um, on, on your platform, whether it's, so I use TD Ameritrade, their institutional platform for advisors. Um, so for a mutual fund that is not a transaction fee fund, um, it's generally $25 just to purchase a mutual fund that's not on their list of. And so one of my things as an advisor is I try to mitigate is all the fees that I can. And so I use um, NTF funds for most of my clients, non, no transaction fee funds, non-transaction fee funds. Um, and so that's something to be aware of. So because every time you get purchase more or sell some, I mean, you're looking at, you know, potentially a $25 fee each time, which really cuts into um, the growth of your, your portfolio over time. So uh, we try to keep expenses low. So, um, and then uh, kind of going into strategies. So we talked about market cap and then passive versus active. Um, and those all kind of intertwine themselves into the different types of mutual funds that you can get out there in the market. Um, there's also, um, well, let's dive into those real quick, and then we'll circle back to some other things um, with strategies. Yeah, as, as far as the different types of mutual funds, really there's going to be a mutual fund for <clears throat> any type of uh, investment you're looking for um, as far as stocks, bonds, um, small, large cap, international, emerging markets even down uh, as specific as individual sectors. And it just really depends on what type of exposure you want. And mainly 
um, on a diversified portfolio, you're going to want exposure to uh, a lot of those different groups. <clears throat> but it's nice that um, not only can you uh, buy a mutual fund that is completely diversified, but you can then buy them that uh, that are specific to a certain area and put them together to diversify on your own. So there are really just a, a lot of different options there. Um, one thing to you know keep in mind is that different areas and different mutual funds will move in different ways. For example, a lot of times emerging markets are going to move in a different way uh, than U.S. markets. Um, and so it's kind of nice when you have a, a group of, of different products um, that are you know, one, one is up, the other one might be down. Um, but that will kind of, you know, gives you a smoother ride uh, over time. Yeah. I, uh, Michael Kitsis had a, a funny, a very true and uh, funny uh, post on LinkedIn that I saw recently. And it said diversification means advisors always having to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And it's because we don't know what's going to outperform um, this year or next year. We have our ideas, but we try to uh, create a diversified portfolio to capture the upside of uh, all the different asset classes and not not be too saturated one particular asset class. And so you kind of alluded to emerging markets. So there's um, looking at, so domestic, global, international, and emerging markets are kind of the four big ones that I look at. And so it's domestic, that's going to be um, in our terms, US-based. Um, and then global is going to be, uh, well, let's go to international. International is going to be everything outside of the US. Um, and then when you mix in global, it's a combination of, it can be domestic and international. And so it's global, you're, you're getting everything. And then there's emerging markets, um, which is um, the what, underdeveloped countries that are emerging um, um, to becoming a developed country. I don't know, maybe you have a better take on that one. <laughs> well, yeah, they tend to become, uh, you know, countries that, uh, you know, infrastructure might not be quite up to, to speed of, of more developed countries like the U S um, a lot of times they're going to be faster growing um, because they have um, populations that, um, well, that are growing uh, rapidly and, a lot of times, and not always, but a lot of these uh, countries also are very dependent on um, natural resources. Um, so you'll also have to, uh, you know, keep in mind uh, that because a lot of times they'll move, um, you know, as their natural resources uh, markets move. Um, so they kind of give you a different exposure uh, than the other groups that you mentioned. Um, and it makes them unique. They've also actually, have, over very long periods of time, done very well. And so when you have a group that uh, over a long period of time has done well, but yet tends to move not in uh, not step by step as your U.S. local market, um, it, it's a very attractive uh, 
to, to be involved in something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like to um, kind of look at it as, so I guess picking out, so international, an example of that might be like the UK or Israel. Um, and then emerging markets, India would be an example of emerging markets. I think China is still considered emerging market, right? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Crazy, but um, neither here nor there. Uh, but yeah, it, it, uh, I like to think of it, <clears throat> and maybe this is a homer bias, but, um, but I, I like to think of it uh, in terms of going back to our large cap, small cap, and stability and potential for growth. Um, whereas the U S is kind of like the large cap and your emerging markets is kind of more like a small cap. Um, so there's more volatility and I'm looking at, so there's a good asset class returns matrix that, um, a lot of different, um, financial websites and whatnot put together, but it shows different asset classes by the year and how they performed. And I think it does a great job of showing why we diversify because not everything is on, not the same thing is always on top each year. And so this one, I'm looking at the novel investor and it's looking at asset class returns. And so, um, so kind of to your point in 2017, emerging markets were the, uh, um, top asset class as far as their performance for the year. According to this, it was up 37.8%. Um, international was second on the list. But if I go to 2019, large cap domestic was on top. Um, it was up 31.5%. And second was REITs, real estate. Um, now go back to 2008 and look at emerging markets. It was down 53.2% according to this. And so those wide swings, the volatility there, whereas uh, large cap was down a significant, that was the financial crisis of 2008. And so large cap was down 37%, still a lot, but uh, less, much less than, than the emerging markets. Um, and maybe that's a, not the best way to think about it, but that's kind of how I think about it. You're going to want to make sure you have a nice long time horizon. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, Things that were up last year aren't necessarily going to be up, and things that were down last year aren't necessarily going to be down. So it's we're not trying to predict the future. So, and so this this kind of gets into ETFs or exchange traded funds, and these are very similar to mutual funds. Um, and it's you know your basket of stocks and or bonds um it's diversification it's it's efficient um these are generally a little lower cost than than mutual funds um just because most of the time when you're talking about etfs you're talking about a passive investment there's been maybe you know this but there's been uh, i think a little more push for active etfs um but by and large it's still pretty passive but you have all the same different, there's different types. There's a domestic large cap growth ETFs, just like there's a domestic large cap growth mutual fund. And so they're, they're very similar. The, I think the big differentiator between them is kind of how they trade. And what I mean by that is, so if, if I want to buy a mutual fund today, it doesn't matter what time I, I put my order in to purchase it. It'll be at the end of the day 
and I'll get whatever the price is at the end of the day when it settles. Whereas an ETF, it's a lot like a stock, trades like a stock. If I want to buy an ETF now, I can go out and buy an ETF now and I know what the purchase price is now. Um, and it trades throughout the day like a stock. Whereas a mutual fund just settles at the end of the day and you put your order in and you get whatever the price is at the end of the day. Dive into a little bit more about ETFs and differences. and Sure. Really, when looking at an ETF, it's a basket of whatever, of stocks, bonds, exactly like a mutual fund. Also, just it's a basket of individual securities. What makes an ETF different than a mutual fund, um, like, like you mentioned, you can buy and sell it whenever the stock market is opened. Um, whereas a mutual fund, at least most um, mutual funds are going to be, you get the end of the day pricing. One of the um, great things about ETFs is they are a little bit more tax efficient than mutual funds. And I think that's really important to investors to understand the difference. Mutual funds, when there is a security inside of it bought or sold, there's a capital gain if there was a gain. And that is passed on to investors. The way that exchange traded funds are set up, that is that does not occur. And so their capital gains tend to be that are passed on tend to be much lower. And so you're you're looking at a more tax efficient uh, vehicle to hold your stocks or bonds. Um, like like you mentioned, at this point in time, it does it, it is more likely that an ETF is going to be a, a passive uh, strategy. However, that does seem to definitely be moving because of this tax efficiency. There are more and more um, active ETFs showing up, uh, you know, every day. Costs do tend to be lower on ETFs as well. And now that most um, brokerage firms aren't charging uh, a commission on, for example, a stock trade, well, ETFs for the most part fall into that bucket as well. So that um, expense of getting in and out has been reduced because of that. And it's another reason that makes ETFs um, very attractive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what what you're talking about there are the transaction fees to buy and sell. And for um, it used to be not too long ago where equity trades, so stocks and or ETFs were um, for the broker I was using, it was anywhere from six to seven dollars a trade. So anytime you wanted to buy or sell in and out of that stock or and or ETF, it was a you know six seven dollar charge. Whereas the mutual funds were typically more like twenty five dollars ballpark. Um, what we've seen is this race to zero on transaction fees, and so um, I think it was Schwab was one of the first ones, and it was kind of a domino effect where um, once one went, the rest go, and it was a race to zero on the on the transaction fees. And so now you can buy in and out of stocks and or ETFs for no fee, no transaction fee, kind of like a, a toll road, right? You have to pay a toll to use the road. That's gone. They blew that up. It's It's gone. Uh, and, and so it's, um, you know, makes these more attractive, even more attractive, uh, because it, you know, 
going back to what I try to do for clients, minimize fees. Um, and that's one way that I do it. So, so I think last thing I want to touch on is diversification. Uh, we've said the word several times throughout the podcast and really let's talk about what that means and why we do it. And I'll let you take this one off. Sure. Um, you know, it, it all goes back to the risk that you are going to take if you own one security. If it's a, um, a stock, you have the risk of the business performing poorly. You have the risk of um, management being incompetent. You have the risk of them borrowing a lot of debt and going bankrupt and your investment goes from whatever you put into it to zero. Diversification allows you to buy or uh, a large number of whatever your security is, stocks, bonds, so that if that does happen to one of your companies, you have 99 more that aren't affected by that bad management team or that bad business. So it really takes your risk and reduces it substantially. You will continue to benefit over time uh, by the growth in whatever asset class that you're investing in, um, but you won't be exposed to one-time events that can really uh, destroy a portfolio, uh, such as being, you know, owning a bond that, uh, you know, the company goes bankrupt uh, and you get maybe pennies back on, on the dollar. So Kmart not only, what's that? Bonds from Kmart? <laughs> Or Sears, or I don't know. Yeah, like it could could have been any of them. Sometimes I get a little bit of money back, um, but there there are uh, instances where you get virtually nothing back. So, not only can you diversify against individual investment risk, but you can also diversify across asset classes. Um, and it's the same thing. When one goes down, another might be going up. And it just smooths out your ride and makes it a lot easier to um, <laughs> to, to, to tolerate. And you know, if you were in investments that went up and down a hundred percent or ninety percent uh, over short periods of time, it's 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 impossible to pretty much have the emotional control to stick with your investments. So by spreading out your risk among Everything we talked about today, market caps, different sectors, international, U.S., etc., it makes for a, a portfolio that uh, one that you can stick with and over a long period of time should um, perform well without the extreme volatility. There's still going to be some volatility, but it's definitely muted. So, yeah, pure risk versus volatility. and so. Um kind of just giving a definition there to kind of uh, the probability. So pure risk is the idea of the probability that an investment will result in permanent or long lasting loss of value. Volatility merely is more how rapid or significant an investment tends to change in price over a period of time. So not when you're looking at the so the difference between an individual stock versus um, you know an S and P 500 index, there's the pure risk of you're gonna lose everything investing in an individual stock if it goes bankrupt. Whereas 
the idea that there's the chance that all 500 companies in your five S and P 500 index all go bankrupt is, you know, slim to none. Right. Unless an asteroid hits the earth or something. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's just not likely to happen. And so the risk with the index, the diversified index is just kind of the ups and downs. What is the magnitude of those ups and downs? Um, and uh, and so that's kind of what we're we're talking about. So last thing I had on the list that I wanted to talk about was target date funds. Um, I know that's a big question for people, uh, especially with like their four hundred one k. I know that's a default for a lot of investors, and for people that you know are like, I don't know all these different investments. Target date fund is just uh, you know seems like an easy option for me. Why not do that? And so the thoughts, opinions on target date funds, pros, cons. Well, yeah, you, you, you nailed it as far as the pros. It's easy. It's simple. And if you have no interest in investing or you just don't have the time or don't want to learn, it's a very simple way to go because it's, you just put your money into it and it's, in theory, covering you um, across different types of investments and managing your investments to a specific date in the future when uh, theoretically you will retire. So that, that's definitely the pros. But by doing that, there's a lot of cons involved. Um, you're going to pay for that simplicity many times. Um, a lot of the uh, target date funds are a little bit more expensive than if you would, for example, put together a portfolio using um, mutual funds ETFs that are that do different things. Um, I think that if you look at them, and, and again, each target date fund is different, but a lot of them are too conservative. Um, we have amazing longevity, um, and that is only going to get longer uh, as we advance with scientific um, medical advancements and you don't want to be um, ha you don't want your portfolio moving too conservative too early. Um, and I think that that is a risk in some of these target date funds. Um, and, and then I would say one last uh, con is it is really looking at only like you mentioned, say a 401k, it's only looking at those investments and it's looking at those in isolation. Most people are going to have um, investments elsewhere, whether it's a spouse's 401k or you have a, a separate brokerage account or you have an IRA. We talked about those last week. <laughs> yeah. So you want all of your investments to be part of your diversified portfolio. Whereas the, if you have a, a target date fund in your 401k, it's specifically looking at that investment as your entire portfolio. And so it can really skew um, your investments um, unfavorably. And, you know, so that's a, that's a reason that uh, they may not be ideal. Yeah. Yeah. It's something I was reading um, in a financial uh, article was that it's, it's a one size fits all approach. If you're looking at a 401k, you're, it's meant for the average employee, but no one is average, right? Every 
person's situation is unique to them. And so it's kind of a one size fits all when you're not a one size fits all um, needing a one size fits all investment plan. And uh, typically uh, what you mentioned, they're more expensive um, for the simplicity. And there's a market watch article that I, I uh, saw a while back that um, they measured up performance over time versus a 50, 50 balance portfolio and the 50, 50 balance portfolio, meaning it's 50% stock equity um, and then 50% bonds or fixed income that that portfolio outperformed um, the target target date fund over this period of time that they looked at. So um, it was, it was pretty interesting. I'll post that in the show notes. Yeah. And then I guess kind of the last piece is it gets more conservative over time. And when you're looking at compounding really taking effect, it's in those latter parts where um, the compounding really kicks in. And when you're getting more conservative at that time, um, it's reducing the effect of the compounding. So, which kind of gets into the point of that, that article. So, all right. So just to kind of recap real quick, we talked about stocks, you know, what what makes up stocks, the different types, uh, how they're classified and everything. Um, talked about bonds. Um, Kyle doesn't think they're very sexy. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a more, more stability. They have different credit ratings. So different risk features similar to, to stocks. Uh, mutual funds talked about kind of the char- characteristics of mutual funds, um, how it's a basket of stocks and or bonds, and they come in all different shapes and sizes and how ETFs are uh, very similar um, to mutual funds. It's just usually a more efficient way, uh, uh, cost-efficient way to do those. Um, and then uh, the importance of diversification and um, why we diversify and uh, why we always have to say sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, I, and I know this, all, it, this was a long episode, but it's a good episode. It's an important episode. Um, digging into these things, we could spend, you know, the whole day diving in more to these. Um, and I'm not trying to make everybody an expert. I just want people to understand the difference between these things, just to be able to understand. So when they go to an advisor, um, I know when I first went to an advisor, I didn't know it was kind of like over my head. And so I just want to give, equip people with, um, enough knowledge to know, what an advisor would be talking about or um, uh, or if they're looking to DIY, maybe this helps them. So, um, but it, I, I know if it sounds confusing, I get it. Um, so feel free to drop me a line um, with your questions of what we discussed today and I'll do my best to answer them. Maybe I'll do a future Q&A episode um, if I get some questions in. So that'd be maybe, maybe kind of fun. So David, this has been awesome. Um, tell people, tell the listeners where they can find you. Sure. Um, you can, um, find me at, uh, I have a blog that's uh, on my website, uh, pathbridgefinancial.com. It's just all together. And, um, I, I have, uh, I'm active on LinkedIn and Twitter, but, uh, just if you go to either of those sites, just either type in David Tuzzolino or probably easier pathbridge, uh, financial, it'll, it'll come up. Um, I apologize if I was the reason that this went a little bit long, um, but this has been a blast. And uh, thank you so much, Kyle, for for having me on. And uh, I I wish you the best of luck with your uh, podcast. Hey, thank you. Thank you. And uh, we're going to get you starting one soon. 
So it's been a pleasure. And um, no, I'm always the reason why these things go over. So, um, but I, I hope everybody enjoys it and uh, finds some value in it, finds it inf informational and also maybe a little entertaining. So um, that's, that's my, that's my goal. So awesome. Well, Hey, I'll see you soon. All right. You take care. Thank you very much, Kyle. Thanks for listening to Personal Finance from the Hilltop. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like more information about me or Hilltop Financial Planning, you can visit hilltopfp.com, no dash. For links and resources mentioned in the podcast, be sure to check out the show notes. Also, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you get all the new episodes when they drop. Any five-star reviews are highly encouraged and greatly appreciated. You can find Personal Finance from the Hilltop on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, the Hilltop website, and now Amazon Music. At Hilltop, we continue to bring on new clients. So if you or someone you know are interested in discussing how we can help you find financial freedom, go to our website and click on the schedule a call in the upper right-hand corner. We offer a free 30-minute introductory call. No sales pitch, just a conversation about you, what you're looking for, and how I can help. And now, lastly, for the dreadful, scary disclaimer. Yep, that's it. That my attorneys not on retainer want me to mention. Everything on this podcast is of my opinion or my guest's opinion and is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as a fiduciary. This podcast is for educational purposes only. Hilltop Financial Planning, LLC, is a state-registered investment advisor in the state of Missouri, but serves clients nationwide where exempt from registration. Another episode of Personal Finance from the Hilltop in the books. Signing off from the Hilltop, I'm Kyle Hill.